Well, good evening. I am Bob, and I am an addict and an alcoholic. That's a wonderful greeting. It, 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 it really is. It's sort of um, silly. And, and, and uh, alcoholics have such a tendency towards seriousness that uh, silly is actually good. Um, I have a five-and-a-half-year-old daughter who does not trust adults who are unable to be silly. She just watches them and she'll come and say, Daddy, he doesn't know how to play very good. <laughs> And, and walked away. Uh, there's, a, there's a guy here from California tonight who is from a group called Radford Street. I guess it still exists. I don't know. But he reminded me of something that's appropriate for a young people's conference. There used to be sort of a ruling old-timer there by the name of Larry. And he used to get up and say that he pitied those of us who were young, that um, we were going to live too long to stay sober until we died. Well, I'm still here, and cigarettes killed him, so, you know. Um, <laughs> but it's a message in that, and it's a very powerful message in that, and the message is that his own personal recovery was so uncomfortable for him that if he had to do it for 40, 50, 60 years, he knew he'd never make it. He knew somehow um, he would collapse. Now, I've gotten a reputation for being controversial as a speaker. I have no idea why. Maybe we should try and sort it out to see uh... Well, I'm sober, so there's no controversy there. I've been sober 31 years. No one can disprove that. I've been told that people have called Southern California Central Office and asked for my telephone number to come be a convention speaker, and they were told that I'm no longer in AA. I wonder who makes that determination. <laughs> I thought it was me. <laughs> but apparently one of our trusted servants has started to wear long robes and wear a ring and has made the decision that uh, people who talk about anything other than putting the blood in a jug don't belong. So I'm here to tell you about my recovery. You may not like it and it may make you uncomfortable and you may not agree with it, but there's nothing you can do about it. You know. It's my recovery and it works very well for me. The reason they said that it was difficult for me to get here tonight is we just moved. I mean, the moving trucks just pulled out Wednesday from Arizona to New Mexico. So it was tough just finding a suitcase. And uh, my computer case has got an elastic band tied to it because I go, I mean, this is one of those trips that, you know, from hell. But anyway, here I am. <laughs> couldn't find an alarm clock, so I had to go buy one and I couldn't figure it out. And I set it, but I set the time wrong because I got up at four instead of five, which started the whole day off really bad, but now enough of that. Here we go. Um, I get, you know, real uh, passionate about um, the fact that this is 1993 and there's a tremendous amount of recovery information available for people who are trying to recover. Um, we've got an old timer who's 50 some odd years sober sitting in the hills of New York and he started a fellowship that they call um, AAA, All Addictions Anonymous. Tom's an old friend of Bill's. He was one of Bill's best friends. He kind of fell out to the wayside, of, to the side of the road based on the fundamentalist AA anyway a long time ago and said, hey guys, you're missing the point here. This is a spiritual program and the problem is the same and the solution is the same and we've got to stop being so divisive that together um, we all have strength and as long as we're fighting each other, um, we're fighting a losing cause. I happen to agree with him because there's a lot of resistance in our society today against recovery. In case you haven't watched the talk show lately, if you were a good American, you'd just stop drinking and get a job <laughs> with a little radioactivity thrown in. God, Bob, don't get political for Christ's sake. Well, I am political today. That's part of my recovery. You know, I mean, this program was designed to restore us and return us to the community in which we live. I believe very strongly in a sense of community, and I get involved in mine. And I do, I write letters when things upset me, and I go talk to people when things 
um, make me nervous or make me wonder if my daughter is going to have a safe place to grow up. And I think that uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous can take credit for that because it gave me the foundation in which I began to build the man that stands before you today. And it's an interesting that I can say that because I have um, no conscious memory of ever being comfortable in my body. I do not ever remember as a kid being happy. I don't ever remember being comfortable. I don't ever remember feeling safe. My earliest memories are feeling inadequate, insufficient, incomplete, and like at some level, way down deep inside of me someplace, there was a little spot and it was rotting away, sort of bubbling, some little sewage. And that if you ever saw that little spot in me or you ever discovered it, one of three things would happen. You would go away and leave me. You would make me go away. You would point the little spot out to others and embarrass me publicly. The first 15 years of my life were lived that way, under a lot of stress, a lot of tension, very ashamed of who I thought I was, and after they finally threw me out of high school, before I ever discovered drugs and alcohol, I was a problem student from the gate. I had what they called an attention deficit when I was a child. Actually, they didn't use those terms in those days, they just called me slow. They said it a lot like he had a venereal disease. He's slow, Bobby slow. And I had a reasonably high IQ. And if you had a reasonably high IQ in those days and you were slow, they perceived that your slowness was intentional. Therefore, I wasn't a troubled child, I was a bad child. And I was doing to this, this to them on purpose. I was making Mrs. Cooney, my, my obese, cruel, second-grade teacher, <laughs> I was making her life miserable intentionally. You know, it's like I singled her out to just get her. And so my school life went like that until I was about, I don't know, 13 and I hit six feet and then my relationship with my instructors changed. <laughs> Three days after I was thrown out of high school, somebody gave me a marijuana cigarette to smoke and a gallon of red wine. I'm not sure which one did it, but I know the combination of the two. For the first time in my life, I felt comfortable in my body. I felt great. I am one of these people that was troubled long before anybody ever gave me a substance to put in my body. I had grave mental and emotional problems. I liked feeling comfortable in my body. I liked hearing music suddenly. Suddenly I had girls look like, you know, they were more interesting than I thought they were originally. I was at the beach when I got loaded. The sand felt good instead of for the first time in my life. I liked the waves. Everything took on a new meaning. I came alive. And I got to tell you, the first three years of drinking and using for me were like driving a fine automobile down the highway of life, man. It was like a Rolls Royce of psychic experience, you know? Mm. However, for anybody else out there who happens to be an alcoholic or an addict, you know there's one little catch. <laughs> the stuff stops working. So what happened about three years in, I would take the same amount and same mixture of drugs and alcohol but it wouldn't recreate the feeling of being okay. Instead of feeling okay, now I felt less than okay, even worse than I did before I smoked my first marijuana cigarette and drank my first wine. For the next eight years of my drinking and drugging was kind of like being handcuffed to the bumper of a fine car, being drugged down um, the highway of life. And it always bothered me, you know, that I went to such lengths to anesthetize myself. I never could understand it, why the stuff stopped working. Why did I continue to do it and do it and do it? And I mean, great bodily injury to myself. And finally, I realized in recovery, when I started to get in touch with some stuff, I was all I wanted to do one more time was just feel okay. That's all I wanted. I just wanted one more time to feel okay. I didn't think that was a crime, but I knew no other way to do it. I had no other tools. The only thing I knew was alcohol and drugs. And I took it to the wall. When I rolled into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 26 years of age. I weighed 135 pounds and I was living in the streets. I weigh 200 now, so you can imagine what I look like 65 pounds lighter. A was an interesting experience for me. I did not know I was home. Um, I did not know this was the answer of the rest of my life. Uh, I didn't like the people. Um, didn't even like the meeting halls, actually. Uh, the first meeting I went to was in American Legion Hall. I looked around the room and I thought, these people would be, if, you know, if it wasn't an AA meeting, they'd be here playing bingo. You know, I mean, why am I here? 
But <clears throat> somebody stuck their hand out and said, hey, stick around, it'll be okay, and uh, we're about not drinking one day at a time. And if you do what we tell you to do, you will not have to take another drink again as long as you live. I liked the sound of that. That had great appeal to me. When somebody said to me in AA, do if you want what we have, I, it meant nothing to me because I wasn't in a place where I could figure out what you had. I mean, I looked at you and you, to me, you looked strange. And you would say, you love me, and I got suspicious immediately. Why would I get suspicious when somebody would tell me that they love me? Because I never told anybody in my life I loved them, I didn't want something from them. I wanted something. I wanted them to stop being mad. I wanted them to spot, smile. I wanted sex. I wanted something. So you say it to me, I read you like I read me. I mean, that's the, that's the dynamic of who we are. You know, I, I judge you by me. So I, you know, that was not a lot of warmth or welcome. Hi, I love you. <laughs> my sponsors were active, busy guys. Actually, I didn't, my first sponsor rejected me and turned me over to somebody else. I heard him speak, and he was an ex-con and an ex-mental patient and an ex-police officer, and he listed it. He used to open his talk by listing all these things that he once was. I said, yeah, okay, great, I'll go talk to him. And I went and told him my story, and he turned me over to somebody else. <laughs> I was a little tense. <laughs> so I got busy. They took me to AA meetings. They showed me where the meetings were. They took me out to coffee shops after they showed me where the coffee shop was. They, they made me mop floors, move chairs, make coffee, all that crap. I hated that crap. I mean, I've been beaten half to death in institutions just to get me sweep a floor, much less willingly mop a floor for people who spill their coffee all over. I mean, I used to mop up after the meeting, and I'd think about going out in the parking lot and slashing the tires of these people <clears throat> in the meeting because they were spilling their ashes and their coffee and crap all over the floor. I didn't have any sense of the spiritualness here. You know, I'm somehow providing a service for my fellow brothers and sisters in recovery. It, that message just didn't quite get through. After a few months, geez, I got a job. After a few more months, I got a car. And next thing I knew, they were giving me people to sponsor. You know, my sponsors had a, a, a sort of a weird sense of humor, too. They gave you the guys who had, like, had been around AA for 14 years and never got a year. You know, I was driving people to meetings who could recite the book from cover to cover. I, you know, it was really embarrassing. I didn't even know, you know, the fifth chapter yet, much less the whole goddamn book. But it kept me sober kept me sober. When I got a year, they said, you got to do institutional work, Bob. you got to go back in where you came from, carry the message, be busy. And this busy was really good for me because I didn't have time to get as crazy as I'm capable of getting. They just kept me too busy. And I went to institutions, and I carried panels in, and I spoke, and I took the message, and I did what I was asked to do. And by God, you know what? The program kept its promise. I stayed sober. Didn't drink. Didn't use drugs. My life began to improve. My life began to improve. I had one small nagging problem. Each day I was sober, I got crazier. That was the only thing going wrong. And a few minor relationship problems. I always love that thing about don't get emotionally involved for the first year. Show me it, somebody. You know. I actually think in most instances it's very good because I know nothing that will put you in touch with your sponsor faster than a relationship. You know? It's like, well, you might normally call him once a month. You'll be on the phone three times a day. You know, I'm just sort of a bit You know, I mean, it's, we go completely insane. And I think it's good because it brings some of this stuff up. Otherwise, we walk around looking okay. I mean, there's like this myth in AA that to be recovered is to be fine. You know, it's like the belief system that currently seems to exist in an awful lot of people is that the people who are sober and clean, who are getting their ass kicked by the feelings, are working a bad program. That's a lie. That's incorrect. The people who are getting their ass kicked by the feelings are the ones who are working the damn program. You see? <laughs> I know how to be fine. I was fine in AA for years. Years. 
Now, once I left the meeting, we had a few problems going. I didn't quite, you know, work in society. God, I could be on my way to a meeting and somebody could, you know, fail to use their turn signal and cut me off. And I would be chasing this poor human being through the freeway system of Los Angeles at 110 miles an hour, you know, hanging my head out the window like a dog with foam coming out of my mouth, you know, screaming obscenity, making obscene gestures, trying to catch this bastard who didn't use his turn signal. And maybe he would elude me, and so then I realized, oh God, I gotta get to the meeting, you know, and I... <laughs> so I roll into the parking lot of the meeting, you know, sit in my car for a minute, take the first breath I'd taken in a half hour. <laughs> Breathing is conducive to feeling, and I never wanted to do that. Sort of wipe away the foam, you know, that had been coming out of my mouth. Straighten my shirt, get out of the car, stroll in the meeting, and the greeters would be at the door, you know, hi, Bob, how are you? Fine, man, thanks, how about you? You know? Walk in, get my cup of coffee, sit down, light a cigarette, forget all about it. You know, have a few cookies, put in a pound of sugar, six cigarettes, four gallons of coffee, and that was better. And the thing that really disturbed me is nobody was talking about it. Everybody I heard speak was okay. They were really glad to be here. And their life was really wonderful. You know, I'm three years sober up in the middle of the night having meetings at home alone by myself, you know. I'm like, mm. I'm putting the chairs in a circle in my living room, you know. Because I'd never call anybody in the middle of the night and admit that I needed help because that would be showing them that there was something wrong with me. You know, that I'm flawed, insufficient, incomplete. So I can't let you see that, because you might make me go away, and I need to be here because my life depends on it. So rather than call you at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd get up and hold my own meeting. And I'd, I'd have to book, and I'd, you know, put it over here, and I'd move to that chair, and I'd read the fifth chapter, move to another chair, read the traditions, come back to the leader's chair, suggest a topic, you know, <laughs> whatever it was that was killing me at 3 o'clock in the morning. And then at some point in this meeting, I would wind up in a screaming argument with me. So I find it really humorous that we take ourselves so serious. I mean, I can just be on, I can be on opposite ends of, of almost any question you pose to me. You just give me a minute. One time I can be for it. Five minutes later, I can be against it. You know, it just, it really doesn't matter. So for me to take me real seriously, <laughs> that's expending a lot of energy. It could be better put, you know, in some other way, like not taking me so seriously. And people were, their relationships seemed to be working. Mine seemed to be the only ones that weren't working. They seemed to be able to hold a job. I was the only one having difficulty relating to authority figures, you know, in all kinds of capacities. They just seemed to be okay, because if you asked them, how are you, they'd say, fine. I'm fine. And I thought, one more time, Bob, you don't belong. You're incomplete. You're insufficient. You're inadequate. Something's wrong with you. You better go away to find a place to hide. Well, in one regard, I was really fortunate. I had no way to go to. There was nowhere for me to go. There was nothing else out there for me. Um, as a result of a spiritual surrender, when I was about five years sober, I became a um, television writer. And I started to make lots of money as a television writer. This was good. This was good, because I had always believed I was out of a poor family, and I always believed that if you could get just the right amount of money, everything would be okay. I would feel better. Well, I got the money, and you know, for a while, it really works. It was just like the alcohol and the drugs. For a little while, there was a few months there, I felt better. You know, I could buy a new car and get in it and have a week of feeling okay before I got depressed. Well, you know, they make you believe that stuff. It's easy to fall into that trap. All advertising, or most advertising, is based on that concept. You're not okay till we buy, you buy what we're selling you. I mean, if that wasn't true, there would be no... If an automobile was just transportation, there'd be no need to put numbers and letters on the back of it. But they understand. They know we need to know who is the superior human being in encounters on the road. So, if you drive the correct car... You're a good human being. If you don't drive a correct car, you're a failure as a human being and should actually walk <clears throat> until you get enough money for a good car. 
And I remember going to these Hollywood parties, and I, and I thought, how, what good is it to spend all this money for a car when the only person who knows I got it at the party is the valet Parker, <clears throat> who's whacked out on dope, you know, and he's doing a hundred in it before he even hits the bottom of the driveway. I used to think you should be allowed to carry in the hood ornament and the hubcap <clears throat> to the party, so people you had a sense of who you were. You know, hi, I'm Bob, and uh, I drive this. You know, I'm okay. <clears throat> It's always that thing that I always believe, I felt so bad inside that I always believed that nothing good could come from within me. And if there was ever to be any good in my life, it was going to have to come to me from outside of me. Therefore, if I could get the right clothes or my body in the right shape or get the right partner, the right um, mate, if I could get the right car, have the right amount of money, live in the right house, if I could get these things, then I would be okay. And without these things, I'm not okay. But the thought of going within to the sewer in me to find goodness it didn't compute. I didn't think there was anything there worth finding. I'm the product of an alcoholic home. My father was an alcoholic. My mother was a child beater. And I was the only child. Um, and I was the target of her violence for a number of years. She was a world-class, fist-using, phone-breaking uh, child leader. And children um, believe that if something goes wrong at home, it must be them. Because you see, the thought, if you're this big and you need to rely on these giant people for your survival, to begin to perceive that there's anything wrong with them is terrifying. It means your whole life is in danger. So if I'm getting the crap kicked out of me and it's my fault, I can do something about that. I can smile differently. I can dance a different dance. I can be quieter. I can make myself smaller. I can hide. I mean, I have some power here. I have some control here. I can try and change this situation as long as it's my fault. But if they're screwed up and it's not my fault, then it's a complete hopeless situation. There's nowhere for me to go. There's no hope. I am at the mercy of these two lunatics with whom I'm living with. <clears throat> the dynamic duo, mom and dad. By the time I was 17 years sober, I'd been writing television for 12 years, recognized AA speaker, done a lot of metaphysical work, you know, hit that 11th step, somebody said, hey, let me take you out here, we're going to teach, take, teach, take you to some people who will really teach you how to meditate. Well, they took me to SRF, and these people taught me a type of meditation which is focusing on the third eye and leaving the body. Huh. That's one of my favorite activities in life, is, is leaving. <laughs> That's almost the last place I want to be, is present in my body in the moment. This is like, you know, you know, forget that. I mean, they think women are the only, you know, there's all these jokes about women, you know, having sex, thinking about repainting the ceiling, like, somehow... I think a man must have started that joke, like, we want them to think we're there. <laughs> you know, give me a... God, should I get a Ford next time or a Chevy? What's... <laughs> so I learned this great meditation. I'd get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to meditate for four hours before I would leave for work. You see, the tragedy about obsessive and compulsive people is we can take anything that's good for us and almost kill ourselves with it. <laughs> just, just about kill ourselves. And even coming out of this blissful state of four hours of meditation, I could get in my car, drive a block, and somebody would cut me off, <laughs> and I'd be nuts again. Completely nuts. And I'd be thinking, Bob, Bob, my God, you just spent... Four hours in the lap of God. You just spent four hours meditating. What is wrong with you? Well, the answer is simple. There's just something wrong with me. And it's never going to get fixed. And the best I can do is not let you find it out. That's the best I can do. So my effort be is keeping up the disguise. That somehow I'm really okay. And that things that make me sad don't make me sad. And that things that make me mad don't make me mad. And things that make me angry don't make me angry. <clears throat> when I hit 17 years, I mean, A could have used me for a poster child. You know, I mean, God, a street kid, no education, 
television writer, driving expensive cars, living in a penthouse at the beach, gorgeous women, going through a lot of wives, unfortunately. That was a small problem. <laughs> By then, I'd been through five. <laughs> well, I had a... What's that? One of the things that made relationships difficult for me is I can't make a woman... I, I, I am terrified of an overtly angry woman. God, I wonder why, you know? I mean, after a couple of broken noses, a few teeth knocked out, a few black eyes, you know, a punctured eardrum, it's sensible that I might be a little leery of angry women who are yelling and screaming, that it would terrorize me regardless of my size. And that one used to drive me nuts. Never met a man I was afraid of, because I know somehow I'll take you down. I'll get you down somehow. Don't know how, but you're going to go down. I know that. You show me an angry woman, and I want a place to hide. I want somewhere that I can go hide. So it's very difficult to be in a relationship when you can't make your partner mad. I mean, it's like, and if they get mad, you've got to stop them from being mad. One of the things I could do with women once I became a television writer is I could give them a credit card so they could go shopping. <laughs> if you're sitting out there, this is a bad idea. This is a real bad idea. No one can shop like an, uh, an obsessive compulsive woman <laughs> on your credit card when they're mad at you. They can make you bleed on that one, let me tell you. So it's real impossible to have a complete relationship if you can't make your partner angry. If you're so terrified of their anger that you have to dance, sing, move, arrange, do whatever it is to stop them from being mad. So if my partners got angry, I had only one choice, which is to get rid of them. Now that sounds simple enough, but now I'll fill you in on the dynamic that existed here. You can't tell them that you want to get rid of them because they're going to get mad. <clears throat> but I got to get rid of you because you're mad. <clears throat> but I can't tell you I got to get rid of you, so now I got to force you out. I got to drive you out of my life. Well, how do I do that? Well, I look and see what my dad did, and I do what my dad did. My dad did it with my mom for years, and it worked. He stopped having sexual relations with her, and he didn't talk to her. Now, it took my mother 13 years to get the point, but she finally got it, right? <laughs> I was lucky in that all the women that I was marrying were in recovery, so they had sponsors who wouldn't let them go that long, you know. <laughs> so eventually I'd drive them to the point where they had a choice, kill themselves or leave me. Their sponsors convinced them I wasn't worth dying over, and they'd leave, and they'd go away. And that was good, because that's what I wanted, because I didn't want to make them mad. I just wanted them to go away. I just wanted them to go away. This is the guy in recovery who can't talk to the people that he's living with, having sexual relationships with, and sharing his life with he's too afraid, too afraid. I could go in the meeting, though, and somebody say, how are you, Bob? And I'd say, fine, thanks. Just fine. So, at 17 years, I had a small problem. The outsides of my life looks great. Penthouse apartment, gorgeous girlfriend, divorcing a gorgeous, expensive wife, nice cars, great job, whole package. Respected A speaker, all of it. One little hitch. Every morning when I woke up, the first thought in my mind was to die. That the only alternative to this day would be to take my life. Drinking and using were no longer even in the picture. Didn't even exist as an alternative. Now it was to just die. What this eventually forced me to do was to seek help. Well, I think we're okay till this point. I don't think I'm controversial yet. <clears throat> Is there any controversy here? We're okay so far. Now, here we go <clears throat> over the line. Oh, yeah, and also, one of the things that was getting me crazier is that during this period of time, I was eliminating things that were killing me, only because I just, I have a habit of using up my lifetime supply of stuff before I die. <laughs> so, like, I got up one morning to have a cup of coffee and my throat closed. I mean, it just wouldn't go down. I don't want to take any credit like, hey, you know, I understood caffeine was bad for me and I made a spiritual, intellectual decision to remove this substance from my life. Bullshit, I couldn't swallow it. It just wouldn't go down. <clears throat> my body said, sorry, Bob, you're 35, but you have drank 90, 90 years of coffee. <laughs> so I'd given up caffeine and I gave up sugar because uh, sugar was wiping me out. I gave up smoking because the smoking was wiping me out. The smoking story is worth telling. <laughs> In this room. <clears throat> I 
I was sent down one time to, to we we're doing a story on, uh, on suicide. And so I went down to suicide prevention to, um, to interview the people down there and to get information that I needed for this story that I was going to write. Oh, you better light up now. Yeah, it may be the last one for a couple of years. I've had people yell at me about, you know, talking about non-smoking and AA, me like somehow we're not supposed to recover from stuff. You're supposed to stop drinking and die from emphysema. <clears throat> I somehow don't think that when you, when you cross the threshold into AA that it's the end. I got this concept that the founders that designed this program had the idea that when we cross the threshold into this fellowship, it's the beginning. It's a starting place. It's a place to go forward from. And so what I had to do was find a way to take my, 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 myself forward. So I'm down at suicide prevention. We walk in this conference room. I sit down. I whip out my Marlboros and my, you know, $75 electronic super butane flamethrower, whatever the hell I had. <laughs> and I look around and there's not an ashtray in the room. Now, when you're in a meeting room with seven people and there's no ashtray, you're a smoker, you know you're not on friendly ground. You know what I mean? It's like real clear. But they were really nice. They didn't say anything, right? So I said, oh, no, that's cool. I'll get you an ashtray. No problem. Wait a second. And this guy jumped up and ran out. And he's out in the outer office, and he's opening and closing drawers and banging crap around. And finally, he comes back with a splatter, man, like you could put a fish on, right? <clears throat> and he sets it down in front of me, and like I'm supposed to smoke nonchalantly. You know, I'm the only one <laughs> in this room with this thing in front of me. So the then head of suicide prevention says to me, you know, we have an official opinion on cigarette smoking if you're interested. And my inner being responded before my mind had an opportunity to shut me up. and said, yeah, what is it? And the guy said, well, based on all the information that's currently in about the, the detriment of cigarette smoking to your physical health, we view cigarette smoking to be covert suicide. It's a little tiny gun with a little tiny bullet. I was really glad I'd asked, you know? It was like, this is the information. Now, I'd love to tell you one of those great AA from Rise from the Ashes kind of stories. I walked out of the door of suicide prevention and never smoked again. Bullshit. I smoked for six more months. However, <laughs> it was not a good six months. <clears throat> Every time I lit a cigarette, I could hear the gun go off, you know. <laughs> and sometimes I got so paranoid being an old dope, any old dope smokers understand this kind of paranoia, I would look around and see if the people next to me had heard it, you know. It was like... <laughs> Do you know that I'm shooting myself? Gave him up. What a tough habit to kick. And I'll tell you, one thing I learned was just fascinating. Nicotine and tar seemed to repress anger. <laughs> because once they were gone, I was no longer so nice. I'd come in the meeting door for once in my life, and the greeter would stick out their hand and say, Hey, Bob, how are you? I'd say, Fuck you. They'd <laughs> say, Maybe you should start smoking again. I'd say, Maybe you should die. Yeah. I was completely insane. I mean, there's a, a while went by that I was not fun to be with at all. But I had made a decision. I wanted to be a non-smoker. That's all. I wanted to be a non-smoker. I was hanging out with a couple of spiritual dudes, and I'd taken them to a few AA meetings, and they fell down laughing. You know? They, they just said, what, what are you trying to tell me here about recovery? What are you trying to tell me about the spiritual life? What, what message are you trying to convey? You know, they said, look at the people. They're smoking, drinking coffee, shoveling in sugar. Man, they're whacking themselves out on all this stuff, and you're trying to convince me. And, and, and it took me a while to, to, to understand, to explain to them what, what recovery is and how we move at our own pace. So I'm not telling you that story to tell you to quit smoking. You may hear that. That's what you're hearing. I'm just telling you a story that transpired in my life that got my attention that made me stop smoking. This is my recovery. I'm not here to tell you what to do. That's not what this is about. This is about my sharing my experience, my strength, my hope. Whether it's compatible to yours or not really doesn't matter. Well, I think one thing that's really important to understand is that you and I can hold different opinions and neither one of us has to be wrong. See, I, I didn't grow up in that kind of house. I grew up in a house where there was one opinion. That's it. And you either abided by it or you got murdered. So, so I go through life thinking that 
there must be a opinion and that's it and everybody else who's opposed to it has got to come into line or be wrong and that's not the reality if you disagree with me it's cool I believe that's what this is it's healthy here I think a little conflict here would be good in the fellowship I think a little disagreement is good I think it's healthy it gets the juices going makes us think makes us consider new things makes us look at different ideas unless you're so rigid that you can't let information in and then now we can go back to the book which is contempt prior to investigation I, I mean um, I, I'm a, a big supporter of, of adult children meetings and I know people that will tell you that they're the worst things on the planet and they've never been there you know, so maybe they should read their own big book first, which talks about contempt prior to investigation. They don't have to go except for once, check it out, leave, and then shut up, you know, and let people go where they have to go. Okay, so let's get back to 17 years wanting to die. I looked around and I had no choice, and what I finally needed, actually I got into um, an argument with my um, young woman I was living with and referring to my five previous wives she screamed in my face one day, Did you ever stop to think maybe it wasn't them? <laughs> and I looked at her, for, I thought about it very seriously, and I looked at her and said, No. It never dawned on me it wasn't them. You see, because let's come back to the fact that there's nothing good inside of me and I need you to be okay. Therefore, I've always believed, ever since I could remember, if I could find the right partner, my whole life would be okay. That's not a lot of burden, is it, ladies, when you go on the first date? I just want you to fix everything. <laughs> so the fact that the relationship failed only meant that I had not yet found the right person. It didn't mean that there was anything wrong with me, you know, because I kept hitting this continuous wall. I mean, that's one of the high... Oh, well. I mean, how many times have you... Is there anybody here besides me that you find yourself repeating behavior sober? <laughs> you know... <clears throat> And going, boy, I didn't really intend to do that, you know, why, why am I doing that again? I probably made the single most profound statement of all my sobriety when I was about three years sober, and I didn't understand it, neither did the people in the room, but it was really beautiful. What I said was this, <clears throat> and this was like three years in, but I already knew it. I knew what was going on, but I didn't know what was going on. I said, you know, if somebody had followed me throughout my entire career of drinking and using drugs, and they were still following me now that I'm clean and sober, they could tell you what my next move was going to be. The message was clear, but I didn't hear it. Bob, you're being controlled by things from the past. Causes and conditions. It talks about it in the big book. Causes and conditions. They say real clearly in the fifth chapter when it talks about writing an inventory. Here we put our feelings down. That's not a good word in recovery, feelings. You know, my inventories were about acts, acts. I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. That's what my inventory is about. How did it make me feel? I already felt rotten. You know, I felt rotten before I did it. How could I feel any worse after I did it? I already didn't, was uncomfortable in my body. I felt inadequate, incomplete, insufficient, like something's rotting inside of me. How the hell can I feel worse than that? Even if I just shot you, it didn't, you know, but part of the game. So after listening to this woman scream at me, I thought, you know, I need some help here. A, it was getting expensive. These divorces were costing a lot of money. Because it's real hard to get rid of people. Again, the thing about you don't want to make them mad, so I don't want to, you know, you want to make sure they're comfortable so they don't get mad. Oh, God, it was just a nightmare. So I thought, I looked around and I didn't see anybody that I knew who could help me. So I thought, I need to get some therapy. Now, according to some people, I now step into the area of controversy. There's no controversy here. Anybody that says that should read this book. This book says there's a lot of highly skilled professionals out there and we should avail ourselves of them if we need them. End of comment. Period. Bill was in therapy for a lot of his recovery. <clears throat> I thought I should see a woman therapist. Because <laughs> I was having so much trouble with them, it seemed only sensible to try and get some inside information so I could clean this act up for once and all. So I went to see this woman therapist, I sat down in her office and we had that one free get acquainted session, you know, where you see if you like each other well enough to work with each other. She said, tell me a little bit about yourself, just a synopsis. Start with your childhood. 
I said, well, when I was 15 years of age, they threw me out of high school in Los Angeles. I discovered the wonderful world of drugs and alcohol. I drank and used for 11 years, smuggled dr drugs in from Mexico. Uh, when I was 26, I rolled through the doors of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and um, I've been clean and sober for 17 years. Seemed like a sufficient description to me. She said, um, I said start with your childhood. I, you weren't born at 15. I looked at her and I said, well, I don't remember it. I have no real conscious memory of my childhood. I can remember two incidents. She got this very strange smile on her face, you know? By this point in my life, I was a little bit cynical. <clears throat> I thought the smile meant that when I left her office, she was going to call a Rolls Royce dealer and tell him she'd take the one with the full leather interior because she had somebody who was about to pay for it. I didn't understand what her smile was saying was that, hey, you know what, kid, if you have the courage to stick this out, I'll be here the day that you meet who you really are instead of who you think you are. And that's going to be a wonderful day. So I began this process. Oh, terrible process. But by this time, by the way, I had written 32 inventories, 32 written inventories. They all started at 15 years of age. No one had said anything to me about anything earlier. Why not? Because in order to survive, we have to pick people who have the same belief system we have. So I was reading my inventories to sponsors who also couldn't remember back past 15 and therefore didn't think there was anything unusual about it. I couldn't remember. They couldn't remember. We're fine, right? We're doing okay. Well, she took me back and made me remember things I didn't want to remember. She made me feel the pain I didn't want to feel. She made me feel the pain that I've been running from all my life. It was time to cry tears. It was time to take baseball bats, bataka bats, and work on getting some anger out in an appropriate way, other than 100 miles an hour down the interstate. I used those bats and had so much fury I'd worn the skin off my hands in more than one session. I'd been on my knees on the couch beating it until my fists bled and tears streaming picturing dear mom um, underneath me. The pain was so, so severe. Okay, this was a good process for me. It moved me forward. It moved me into another stage of my recovery that was necessary for me. I'm not telling you to run out of here and go to therapy. And also, I'm not going to say to you if you need extra help, don't go get it. And by the way, nobody has that right in this program. Nobody. People stand up and hold this book up and say, this is the only way. They're leaving out two very important words, which is, for me. For me. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm only here to tell you what's worked for me. Um, I had a little difficulty coming back to meetings. Because <laughs> once I learned about anger, I looked at my friends who were sober as long as I was, and realized they too were driving 100 miles an hour down the road like me. So I would bring this up in the meeting. It didn't go over well. <clears throat> I would say, hey, guys, how about we talk about anger tonight, you know, and, and, and uh, maybe we'll take it for a topic and really get into it. What do you mean, anger? Don't you get it, son? That's a dubious luxury of normal men. <laughs> Hey, cool, I'm not normal, you know, so uh, I need a little help here. What's the end result of all that? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> the end result of all that for me is this. I had to find out that a lot of things that happened to me when I was a very small boy I didn't deserve. I've heard that line over and over and over again. Your parents did the best job they could with the tools they had. Absolutely. Absolutely, that is the truth. My poor drunken dad and my poor nutcase mother did the very, very best job they could do with the tools they had. But there's a fact that cannot be ignored, and that fact is this. The job that they did is criminally punishable in a court of law. Had she done to me in 1993 what she did to me in 1937, they would have put her in prison. They would have taken her away and put her in prison. So then the message here for me is this. What they did wasn't okay. It may have been the best they could do, 
but it's not okay. Got it? Well, that changed a lot of things for me. It's like, you mean I'm not a bad kid? You mean I'm not a terrible kid? You mean I'm really just kind of me? Just a guy? I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a human being. I have good days and bad days. I get happy. I get sad. I get depressed. I get angry. I'm just kind of me. This is it. Wow, this is what I wanted all my life. To just be okay with who the hell I am. Not have to do this big pretense that I'm something other than I am. And if I'm not feeling good, let you know that I'm not feeling good. And if you hurt my feelings, tell you that you hurt my feelings. Well, I could never give you that stuff because that's giving power away, I thought. I never understood it was getting power. I thought if I told you what you did that upset me, it gave you power over me. I didn't know it set me free. I'm a parent today. I'm a daddy. It's, it's, um, I'm also on life number seven. <laughs> However, we have broken all records. We've been married six years. This is very good. <laughs> and we're both realists, too. We have no till death do you part commitment because we realize we're both nuts and we also are both leavers. She and I are always the ones that hit the trail. So we figured we were a good match in that regard. But the commitment we made to each other is simply this. We will not throw the relationship away without getting every bit of help available to us to fix it if it gets broken before we toss it aside. That's our only commitment. We won't throw it away without getting all the help there is available. That's all. And we have this child. Now this is an experience. This experience has taught me a lot. The first thing it taught me, which was mind-boggling to me, is that children arrive on the planet with a full set of feelings. They're not taught, they come with them. So now if we're going to take the concept that children are sent by God, then God has put the children on the planet with a full set of feelings. This absolutely beautiful, blue-eyed blonde, this angelic little girl, six months old, could get so angry she'd change colors. <laughs> she'd sit there on the floor and she'd double her fists up so tight they'd turn purple. She'd cut off the circulation and she'd furrow her brow so hard she'd cut the circulation off here she'd get a white spot because the blood stopped flowing, right? And she'd be sitting there screaming at the top of her lungs, Aah! right? And then she'd realize she was constricted, you know? So she'd throw her arms out, throw her head back, toss herself back on the floor where she could really open up and get it out. Well, my wife and I had been reading a lot of parenting books because we knew that what the information we had was not good on parenting. And perhaps we should get new if this kid was to have a chance. So we understood, let her be angry, stay in the room with her so she knows what she's doing is okay. If she's in the doorway and you need to get out of the room, step over her, but just stay where she can see you. I watched this little person in two months' time learn to express anger appropriately without injuring herself or others. By the time she was eight months old, she'd sit there, double her fist, pull up, scream, hands would change color, spot would change color. She'd realize she's constricted. She'd throw her arms out, throw her head back, and then she'd go like that. And then she'd throw herself back. Because a couple of times she had been too close to the wall, you know? <laughs> So she worked this out. <laughs> the idea here is not to hurt myself, it's just to get the anger out, you know? I've seen her laugh so hard, she has fallen off her feet. Fallen down on the ground. The laughter has so overtaken her. My laughter for decades of my life was, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> that's it, I lived here. Everything coming out came from here out. Everything coming in got stopped here. This was it. I lived here. Compulsive thinking, often called the committee. It's a safe place to be because it keeps you from the feelings. As long as I'm up here, I can create anxiety. If I can create anxiety, anxiety is my drug of choice in recovery. It's, if I stay anxious, I don't have to feel anything. I don't have to get sad or happy or angry. I can just be <laughs> tense on red alert. Well... This child and I, I absolutely adore this little girl. I have walked in her room at night and sat out in a chair and looked at her asleep in her bed and started to cry. 
And I only cry just because she's in my life. She's in my life. This little being is part of my life. And it just absolutely fills me with joy. Just fills me with joy. Yet, parenting is very hard for me. It is a lot of work for me. This is not an easy thing, being the father of this little girl. Now, she has blessed this child. She's absolutely blessed to have me as a dad. I am a fine, fine dad. But I work very hard because when she and I are at cross purposes with each other, which means either I want her to do something she doesn't want to do or I want her to stop doing something she wants to do, my immediate instinct, immediate, like that fast, like breathing, is to double my fist up and slug her. Now why in God's name would I want to strike a little child who I adore as much as I adore this small girl? Because it works. See, I know it works. See, it was done to me. And I know that if I punch her one time, she'll stop doing whatever it is that I want her to stop. Or she'll start doing whatever it is I want her to start doing. This child has never been struck, and hopefully, dear God, will never ever be struck. Um, I do not believe, I'm an absolute supporter of um, Child Protective Services when, and their concept, which is, it is never okay to strike a child for any reason under any circumstances, and there are no exceptions to that. It's never okay. Now, the other side of this, which is fascinating to me with my daughter, is I have as much trouble letting her have fun as I have when we're at cross purposes. Because I didn't grow up in a fun family. You know, mom's kicking my ass in about three times a week. My father's unconscious. They both work for the civil service. Now, I'm not taking it out on civil service, but they didn't join civil service because they gave two, you know, bits about helping people. My parents became civil servants because they wanted a job from which they couldn't be fired unless they murdered a nun on the White House lawn, you know? Their concept was life was hard and nothing came easy and that if it came easy, it'd be taken away from you and if you laugh too much or you have too much fun, you don't understand the seriousness of life. So I got this kid, right? Now these children, man, she's free and she wants to fly and she wants to be and run and laugh and giggle. And one night I've got her in the bathtub. She's about 20 months old. And I'm in the bathroom with her because I've read the books. And they say at under three, they can drown. Well, that doesn't take a lot of intelligence. I can figure that out. If they can drown, you should be in the room with them. So I'm in the room with her. And I'll, I always use the prune test, too, you know, her hand. If it starts to shrivel, then I know she's done. Because I don't know when the hell she's done. So she's sitting in this tub, and there's this pink stuffed kangaroo on the drain by me where I'm sitting. And it's well-loved. It's dirty, beaten up, battered kangaroo. And my daughter wants to bathe this kangaroo. I count ten a lot, being a dad. <clears throat> My immediate response to her request to bathe this kangaroo went something like this. This is an internalized response. No, 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 you can't bathe the kangaroo. It's stuffed with sawdust. The sawdust will get wet. It's never going to dry out. It's going to stink once you get it wet. Some of the threads will tear loose under the arms. And you're going to have sawdust all over the house. <laughs> I thank my dear dead departed mother for her input on kangaroo bathing. <laughs> I look at the kangaroo, I look at my daughter, and I think, who the hell cares, right? <laughs> so I give her the kangaroo, I give her a bottle of Johnson's baby shampoo, and the child goes to work. Within minutes, child and kangaroo both disappear, and they're all these suds. <laughs> and she's just happy as can be. I keep doing the prune test, and finally her hand has started to get like that. <clears throat> so I get her out of the tub, take the kangaroo, rinse the kangaroo off under the faucet in the tub, wring it out, and Dad and daughter head off down the hall to the laundry room. Open the door to the dryer, throw the kangaroo in, close the door, set it for 40 minutes, punch the button, and walk away. Now, Dad and daughter walk away from this dryer with two entirely different sets of energy. My daughter is excited. Her kangaroo is going to come back wonderful and pink and happy, and she's just so happy she can't stand it. And Dad, he's walking down the hallway with her, knowing the only way that the kangaroo is coming out of the dryer is with the dust buster, you know. <laughs> Thank you.
40 minutes later, we come back, open the door to the dryer, and sitting in there waiting for us is this pink, fluffy, gorgeous kangaroo. Daughter, who knew this all along, scoops her up, and away she goes, down the hall. Very happy. Dad, one more time, saying... <laughs> It was supposed to die, and it lived, you know. Because my basic outlook is not always positive on new adventures, because I'm so afraid of them. You know, it's the thing about being ashamed of who you are. You can't go into new adventures, because the people know you've never been there. Yeah, anyway. So on. With this, with this child, we had her grandmother with us for about two and a half years, dying um, from emphysema. If there is anybody would like to quit smoking and wants to talk to me about watching somebody die from emphysema afterwards, I'd be happy to share that one with you. Really very, very, very ugly death. Anyway, grandma dies. Our daughter's there at home. My wife wanted her with us. She dies at home. She dies in her bed. We're with her. We, we nurture her all the way out. Our daughter's there. I mean, she gets to say goodbye to her grandma, her Didi, and pat her and put her head on her tummy and, and, and say goodbye. A few months after grandma dies we're out somewhere my daughter and I and and um, my wife and somebody else I don't remember who and we were somewhere and I don't remember where because what my daughter said to me just completely blew out all my circuits she was sitting thinking one of the things about children which is really wonderful is they know more than they have the words to express and this is what a source of great frustration for children and my daughter well, sometimes when she really wants to express something that she doesn't have the words for, she physically looks up in her head for him. I can see her sitting there, like if she can just look in the right corner, she'll find the words she wants to tell me what it is she wants to tell me. And wherever we were, I was watching her do this for, I'm talking maybe 10 minutes or so, she's like looking for these words. <clears throat> And we do this thing back and forth, you know what, all the time. And she, finally she smiles and she looks at me and she goes, You know what? I go, No, what? She says, I'm going to miss me when I'm died. <laughs> Four years old. Sense of self. I exist. I like me. I'm going to miss me when I'm gone is a result of this program and all the other necessary recovery programs and tools that are available to me out there, my daughter has at age four and age five a sense of self and, and, and okayness and beauty that I never had. It was never given to me. So <clears throat> what I believe is this, and this is just about my own recovery. I've had to get a lot of tools. I think we're blessed that we've got CODA and ACA and incest survivors and sex and love addicts anonymous and debtors anonymous and smokers anonymous. And I don't care if we get 300 programs if we need them. And why do I sometimes get really sort of about it? Because I can take this folder and I can take a pen and I can write down the names of 10 guys up here all of whom at one time had more than eight years of sobriety and every one of them is dead today at their own hands. One of them went home from a meeting and took a shotgun and blew the top of his head off. So he can't tell me he should have gone to more meetings. One of them wrote about his 30th inventory and took enough pills to kill four horses and died. Ten really good guys I have known have died because of the issues of what went on when they were children and the impact on their lives and they couldn't look at them because the tools weren't available. So does it upset me? Yeah, it upsets me a lot. But I'm not telling you to do any of this stuff. You keep doing what works for you. I will support you in any program you need to work to keep you moving down the recovery path. I don't care if it's 4 a.m. trampoline meditation services in the middle of a plowed field out here. I really don't care. As long as you can be part of this recovery community, you can work through your feelings and your pain and move yourself forward and bring a couple of other people along with you, I'll support you in that. What I do get angry at is there's nobody in these halls has the right to tell you otherwise. No one. It is your experience, your strength, your hope. And all I've shared with you tonight, whether you find it controversial or not, 
is my experience, my strength, and my hope. Is there hope? Absolutely. I'm 57 years old. I'm 31 years clean and sober. I am the best man I have ever been. I am more involved in my community with what's going on. A can be very proud of me. Alcoholics Anonymous can be very proud of me. I am a very fine man and a very involved man in the community in which I live. And that's a gift given to me by the whole package of recovery that's available to me. And my wish for you is that you can find what you need to just keep you coming down this path because it's a great adventure. Have a great convention. God bless you. Thank you. Good night.